So if you would, open your Bibles this morning. Mark chapter 11. And happy Thanksgiving Sunday. This Sunday, of course, is Thanksgiving Sunday. Um, world would be a pretty, is a pretty scary place. Uh, you listen to the news at all, you can't help but get shook up a lot. So it's especially good that we pause and give thanks. And we're going to be mindful of that this morning. Um, with the text we'll be looking at, we're actually going to begin the Passion Week. And that may seem to be a little confused because we're starting Advent in two weeks. So we'll talk about the Passion now. I have always loved doing that. That's always been uh, just for me personally, a part of my, my, my meditations, my devotions through the Advent season to think about the events of the week of Christ's suffering. Because, of course, that's what Advent ultimately, I mean, we know in the, in the short term, if you will, it points us at Christmas, but Advent ultimately points us to Christ's death and resurrection. That's why we celebrate Advent. So um, I think it's really appropriate. Um, before we get to the text, our text this morning, a couple of comments about last week. And again, thank you so much, those who are, you know, coming forward or sending me texts or calling me and saying, Pastor, you know, what's, what, is this, what was that about on Sunday? Or what did you mean by that? Or it didn't resonate. And this last week I had somebody come up and say, um, ask about comment that I had made about our understanding God's word in a, in a process or a progressive sense, if you will. And we talked about how both individually in our own, you know, meditations and thoughts or our own study of scripture, how we come to understand more and more. And the question was raised, well, there's also this teaching I had heard or was aware of, the person said, about uh, scripture itself being progressive, meaning that over time, uh, the meaning of scripture evolved or changed. And I said, no, that's not what I'm saying, right? Uh, I would not embrace that idea at all. Scripture means what it means. And it means today what it meant 2,000 years ago. Um, yes, as people, we come to understand more about it. But the text itself, the words of Scripture, mean what they mean, and it has not changed, and it will not change. And there's a couple of them. You know, really good examples of that in Scripture. Uh, we read Jesus talking to, about Jesus talking to the Sadducees, and they were talking about the resurrection. And the Sadducees came with their, you know, their great question. Well, you know, what about the guy that he, he had a wife, and he died, and so his wife married his brother, and then he died, and then that guy died and married the other brother. Who's, whose wife is she? And Jesus had to correct their whole understanding about the resurrection. But then going on to speak of the resurrection, Jesus used this phrase, speaking to the Sadducees, he said, have you not read? Meaning if you had read in the book and understood, you would have known what it meant. He didn't let them off the hook going, well, it meant one thing back then, but now it means something different. No. The word means what it means, and that ultimately is our confidence and our hope. Scripture also says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change, or his word does not change. So we had that confidence. So yes, it's true. In our understanding of the word of God, we clearly grow. We clearly understand things we didn't understand years ago. And as we interact with one another collectively, our understanding grows. But his word remains the same. So I just want to get that out there and, and make sure we're all on the same page on that one. But to this morning, Mark chapter 11... 
an event traditionally called the Triumphant Entry. It's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, and we begin with the first verse. Mark writes, And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found the colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus, put their garments on it, and he sat upon it. And many spread their garments in the road, others spread the branches, the leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Father, we thank you for your word, and would ask, Father, that as we, as we look to it this morning, Father, beginning to do the work of preparing our hearts and our minds uh, for the beautiful season of Advent, when we contemplate and we celebrate the birth of your Son, Father, this incredible gift to us as our thoughts start going that direction, Father, uh, that we would condition those thoughts with these thoughts. Jesus entering Jerusalem, Lord, to ultimately face his death, Father, because that, Father, is what brings the gift to Christmas. Our Savior's death on our behalf and the power of his resurrection made real in us, Lord. So help us, Father. Just help us meditate on these things to see the truth you have for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So what I would like to do this morning as we begin this process um, is first look at the event as the text describes it, make sure we're on the right spot, and then look at some of the Old Testament prophecies because what happens in this section is very clearly linked to some Old Testament prophecies, and then consider the universals because there are some things in this that you know aren't specifically linked to specific Old Testament prophecies. We've said several times that this is a gospel written largely to the Roman mind. And so there are some universals here that extend beyond uh, the Old Testament prophecies that were being fulfilled. And then finally, we can ask that question that we've been asking all along. What does this tell us about Jesus? So let's just look at the text quickly. Again, I'm sure we all know it really well. We look at it every Christmas. So Jesus is approaching Jerusalem from the east. And there's a certain significance from that. He's been down in the Jordan Valley. Everything that's happened up until this passage, the last couple of paragraphs and chapters, have been on the eastern side of the Jordan Valley. Now, most of the pictures you see of Jerusalem are taken from that eastern side. But I don't know if you've ever noticed, they all like look almost the same, the pictures of Jerusalem. You have that glorious picture of, of the Temple Mount. You can see right there front and center in the picture. That's taken about a half a mile away from the city itself. The reason that's the picture you get is that's about the only place on the east side of the city you can even see the city. Because if, if the spot from which that picture is taken on the top of the Mount of Olives, if you back up, and then if you've been to the Holy Land, you know this, if you back up just a couple hundred yards, you can't see anything. Because to the east is the Jordan Valley, which is, it averages about a thousand feet below sea level. It's the deepest rift on the surface of the earth, right? That's not underwater. It's about 1,000 feet below sea level, and you've got Jerusalem, a 
I keep doing it from my perspective. Let's do it from yours. You have the, you have the Eastern Jordan Valley, and you have Jerusalem, which sits at about 2,500 feet. Well, where those pictures are taken of is from the Mount of Olives, which is 2,700 feet. So until you, if you're coming from the east, until you get over the Mount of Olives, you can't see anything because the Mount of Olives completely blocks your view. Um, in my mind, it's like driving down the Kenai. I never forget the first time driving down the Kenai and driving through all that wonderful, you know, black spruce, thinking this is what I came to Alaska for? This is ugly. Anybody live in Kenai or Sudat? And I apologize. But I remember driving through that and going, this is grotesque. What is this? And then you come over the hill and there's Homer. Like, oh, yeah, this is what I came for. All right. Same kind of an idea. You, you've, got, you've got nothing. You've just got a few scattered villages until you crest over the Mount of Olives and boom, there's Jerusalem. The point of that is what is happening at this part of the story is in the shadow of the Mount of Olives. I mean, Jerusalem's right there. It's like three quarters of a mile away, but you can't see it. You can't see it. You can't be seen. by. So these are like the last few, if you will, quiet events away from the attention of all the religious experts in the Sanhedrin and all that in the shadow of the Mount of Olives. And they will very soon top over the Mount of Olives. And that's where the descent um, into the Kidron Valley and then in Jerusalem. So we've got that dynamic to work with. Um, there are crowds. Passover's coming. City's full of people. Surrounding villages are all full of people. Um, so there are some people moving around. It's not like there's nobody around. They're just not, not in the sight of Jerusalem. Verse 2, Jesus sends two disciples uh, to get a donkey. Now the other Gospels include it was the donkey and its mother, you know, mother donkey in the full. Um, I used to really spiritualize that whole account. I don't know about anybody else, but when I first read it, I, I thought in my mind, it has to be like this. Like Jesus, tell these guys, go into Jerusalem and, and get a donkey. And if anybody asks you what you're doing, um, the minute you say, the Lord has need of it, it will be like this, you know, trance kind moment, like take the donkey kind of a thing. I don't think, that's, that's not necessarily it at all. Jesus probably made arrangements for the donkey. I don't know why that took me a long time to figure that out. And there are some things in the text that actually support that idea. Um, for one thing, when they went into Bethany, how'd they know which donkey to get? You know, because it says, get a donkey on which no one had ever ridden. Did they go around and ask everybody? You know, have anybody ever ridden your donkey? Fine, I don't need it. No, Jesus, I think, had pretty clearly made arrangements. The other indication, and Math, I read the Mark's the only gospel to include this, is that this was the, probably the only donkey in the village tied up by somebody's front door at an intersection because that's the word that's used for road. It isn't the normal word for road. It's the word for intersection. So Jesus had instructed the disciples, Go to the intersection, find a house with a donkey tied by the front door. That's the donkey you want. He'd made arrangements. So he had made arrangements ahead of time, I would suggest, to um, get the donkey. And if anybody asked any questions, the password was the Lord has need of it. Boom. Solve the problem. So the disciples um, go and they get the donkey. When they're questioned, they reply as they should. No problem. Verse 7, uh, they return to Jesus with the donkey, place their garments on it. It's been suggested that that in and of itself was perhaps even miraculous. You take an animal that's never ridden before and you throw something on its back. It, anybody had horses? 
that's not normally like the first thing you do is just throw something on its back. It's not going to go well, right? There's other things you do first, right? So that's been suggested. I don't know how much stock I'd put in that, but it's certainly something to think about. They bring the donkey. They throw stuff on its back. Jesus gets on the donkey, and as he begins to ride into town, uh, verse 8, garments and branches are laid out on the road. That's all the visual of Palm Sunday. Um, one of the questions I do have that I wasn't able to come up with an answer for is, um, Whose trees did they get the branches from? You know, how did they feel about this mass of people suddenly stripping their trees of all the branches? I don't know. That's something we can find out in eternity. Um, hopefully it wasn't too much of a problem. But we get to verses 9 and 10, and that's where I think it really begins to get significant. This great prophetic announcement. The people cry out, Hosanna, Hebraic expression meaning Lord save us based on the word Savior. And they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that's where we begin to tie very directly to specific prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 118, 25. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Beseech you rather send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord, the house of David. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So at the very outset, what the people are crying is a very strong you know, linkage to messianic prophecies. So in the minds of the people, that's what we're trying to get, the minds of the people, they see this as a messianic gesture. This is the king entering the city. Uh, verse 11, Jesus actually enters the city. Um, goes into the temple, and that would not have required going anywhere other than the temple. If you enter Jerusalem from the east in the first century, that's where you go, into the temple. So he went immediately into the temple, he looked around, and, and he left, all right? So let's focus on the prophetic element just for a moment here. Again, in Psalm 118, the expression, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Both strong messianic affirmations. The proclamation by the people that this is the Messiah, he's coming. Now, now is the time. There's a little bit more than just that, though. In the book of Zechariah, there's a really significant prophetic passage that this links very directly to. Uh, Zechariah is, is called one of the minor prophets. Now, that doesn't mean his work wasn't significant. It just it was short. You know, you compare it to like Isaiah or Jeremiah. You know, those were really long. Ezekiel really long. Uh, Zechariah was pretty short, but he writes this. Uh, the, the book was short. He writes this in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous, endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So just as some of the prophetic descriptions of Jesus' crucifixion are remarkable in their description of his suffering, even describing his body in the process of hanging on a cross, here we have a very specific Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah entering the city. What does this tell us? The people recognized what was happening. That's the whole point. The people would have had these prophetic concepts ingrained in their thinking. They are longing for a Messiah to come and deliver them from Rome. They're tired of being a possessed and oppressed people. They want freedom. These passages are very much in their thinking. And when Jesus enters, they say these things. It tells us what they were thinking. They saw this 
as prophetic. Even the, even the environment in which Zechariah wrote these things confirms that. Zechariah was post-exilic. It was after the people had been exiled to Babylon and then returned. So Zechariah is back in Jerusalem, but things haven't gotten better. They're still under a foreign power. They're still subjects to Persia. There is yet to be a wall around the city. The temple itself has not been fully restored. Uh, the people, have, you know, after the great excitement of returning from Babylon, they've kind of stagnated. It's not a good time spiritually. They're not, they're not being attacked, but they're not, they're not strong either. They're just living in the shadow of, of Darius, living in the shadow of Persia. So Zacharias wrote this in a time when people were looking for someone to restore the nation. And now the people see Jesus enter the city, and they connect him directly to that. Zechariah carries some great promises. Chapter 2, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they will become my people. So there's even a promise of the great evangelistic thrust calling the Gentiles to God. There's some great warnings. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. So even back in the, in, the, in the prophetic statements about Jesus coming to Jerusalem, and we think even today about the promises we have of his return, that's a double-edged sword. To those who stand in right relationship with the Lord, what could possibly be better than his return? To those who don't stand in right relationship, what could possibly be worse? Nothing is the answer to both of those questions. So we have this tremendous prophetic background and perhaps most importantly, in Zechariah, we have the description of God's desire to dwell among his people and God's desire that his people live rightly. It sounds almost like, you know, Micaiah, he has shown you, a oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you and doesn't give you a big long list. He just gives you some real basic stuff. The same here in Zechariah. These things which you should do, speak the truth to one another, judge with truth, and judgment for peace in your gates. Let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another, and do not love perjury, for all those are what I hate, declares the Lord. So it's really not about keeping 600 and some rules. It's simply walking in fairness and goodness and love and justice. That's what he longs for. The book also declares what will fall upon God's enemies, and the true and genuine worship that will care. There's a whole lot in Zechariah for just 14 chapters. If you want something really good to read during Advent, I would suggest the prophecies of Zechariah. But the people certainly knew them. They were, the, the words were on their lips. And so all of this gets imported when Jesus rides the donkey into Jerusalem. That's what we're trying to see. Jesus is riding the donkey into Jerusalem. The crowds are saying this stuff. They're doing this stuff. They're announcing the arrival of the Messiah it's all crystal clear. When you combine what the crowds are saying and doing with what Jesus has already said and done, it's easy to understand why they were fired up. It's easy to understand why the religious experts were getting nervous and the Romans themselves were concerned. What about the Romans? Okay. Um, We've said that Mark writes a lot to a Roman mind. Another way to put that is he writes a lot to an action mind, right? We've been observing that all through the book, how Mark uses the word immediately a lot. This is happening immediately. He uses present tense to describe things in the past to create the idea of continuous activity, all right? He's doing that. So I asked myself, what about this? 
Because, you know, it's in all four Gospels, right? At least in some measure, all four Gospels talk about it. What about this picture of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling all these, like, Jewish prophecies? What does that say to a Roman, right? What do they care, right? So I spent a good bit of time thinking about that this week. Um, I think the effect on a Roman mind would have been pretty simple. It is one of the most powerful statements Jesus ever made. His planning of it is very clear, very deliberate. His actions are absolute, undeniable in their claim to be the Messiah. There's no other way to prove it, no better way to prove it than what he's doing. And even among Gentiles, and this is where it got so interesting to me as I thought about it this week, even among the Gentiles, the thing Jesus, are, the things he's doing by riding this donkey into town speak loud and clear. To enter a city in this fashion on an animal is a powerful assertive statement. Now, the fact that it was a donkey meant that he was coming in peace. But the very fact that he rode an animal into the city in this fashion is an assertion that he is king. And make no mistake about it. A couple of comparisons, if you will, of this event will help us get how the Romans would have seen this event, or how they would have read this, how the Roman mind, that mind of action. How about Alexander the Great? When Alexander the Great rode into a city, as he did time and time again, he did it the same way every time. He did it on the back of his white horse. He wanted everybody to see that Alexander was coming. There's one exception to that, Jerusalem. When Alexander was laying siege to Tyre, just a short distance to the north, he made a request of the rulers of Jerusalem to send him aid. They turned him down. They turned him down not because they wanted to turn Alexander down. No thinking person would do that. But because they already had a commitment they had to keep. And that happened to be to Darius, the guy that Alexander was fighting. They said, we've given him our word. We won't support any of your enemies. So if you can just hang on until he dies then we can help you. But Alexander wasn't the guy to wait around. And so he made it clear that after he finished with Tyre, he would come and he would sack Jerusalem. But as is recorded, as Josephus writes, in a dream and night, at night, God appeared to Alexander and made it clear that was not what he wanted Alexander to do. So when Alexander, to everyone's great surprise, and this is well attested to in history, when Alexander got to Jerusalem, as he approached the city gate, he got off his horse. He had never done that before because his entry on an animal like that was a statement of who he was, and he wanted to make that clear. And so when he arrived in Jerusalem, when he got off his animal, it was a statement, I may be Alexander, but I'm not king of this city. God is. So even, even in that sense, in the, gentle, in the Gentile mind, the understanding of the way you approached a city and the role of an animal was clear. And the Roman mind, even clearer, would have been the Roman triumph. When a Roman general returned from a successful campaign, this is interesting, not simply from winning a major battle, but when a Roman general had completely finished a campaign, completely eliminated any opposition to Rome, then he would come to Jerusalem and a large procession would be arranged for him. That would be the only time he could lead his troops into Rome without being in violation of Roman law. The Roman Senate would approve his, his, his victory, say, yes, your campaign is successful. You may lead your troops into Rome, and you will do it mounted. 
and then entering, a chariot, entering the city, he would step into a chariot, and they would lead to all their activities. But the way he entered the city would be a clear demonstration of what he had accomplished. All this is in the Roman mind, reading the Gospel of Mark. And when you read that Jesus, or when they read that Jesus entered on a, on a donkey, that just said, yes, he's a king, but he's a king that comes in peace. He's a king that is coming as a, as a symbol that his work is drawing to completion. He is going to win the victory for which he was appointed. All this in the Roman mind. In the, in the Roman mind, Jesus is making two statements. I am king, but I'm a king that comes in peace. And what a message that is to us. Again, thinking about this week, thinking about all that, I still thought, but what about the whole idea that it's not just the Roman mind that Jesus is writing to. It's the action-oriented mind. It's the mind that's focused on deeds. It's the mind that's focused on what is being done rather than what is being said. And then this simple thought occurred to me. This is kind of how I process this. From the time that Jesus said to his disciples, and you can read in Mark's gospel and you'll see it. From the time Jesus said to his disciples, go get a sheep. Donkey. Go get a donkey. That's an old devotional I read many years ago. Uh, go get a donkey. From that point until he gets to Jerusalem, goes into the temple, looks around and leaves, he doesn't say a word. That entire event, Jesus is silent. Everything that is said is said by the crowds. There's no indication Jesus spoke a word. What was he doing? He was letting his actions speak for him. So if, if you're the kind of person that goes, yeah, fine, I'm not so much interested when people say actions speak louder than words, this is, a, this is an event for you. Jesus in his actions made it absolutely clear what he was doing. After he tells the disciples, get a donkey, he remains silent. His actions and the presence and the reaction of the crowd tell it all. You know, one of the things that I really love about Thanksgiving, it does connect. In fact, it's the thing I love the most is having, you know, family and friends around the table. That is absolutely priceless. And that focus of giving thanks, I think that is so absolutely critical. We have so much to be fearful about. And if we allow ourselves, we have so much to be critical of. And we have so much to see and look at and say, if only, if only. Why? We can, we can chase those forever. But there is so much we have to be thankful for. Focusing on thanks. And in the act of giving thanks, we are reminded of what the Lord has done. And if in the days in which we live, if you find yourself fearful, concerned, worried, anxious... Simply remember what the Lord has done. First Samuel 12, 24, Samuel said, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider the great things he has done for you. I don't know how people that don't have faith celebrate Thanksgiving, to be honest. I mean, I talk to them and I say, Well, what do you guys do on Thanksgiving? And they would give thanks. Well, that's only half the sentence. You have to give thanks Four, okay. And you also have to give thanks to, to. If you're not giving thanks to, what are you doing? Praise be to God, we know who to give thanks to. 
And it's because we know who to give thanks to for the great things he has done, we also who to ask prayers of. The two that comes after the word thanks, we give thanks to, connects absolutely to the word of when we have a prayer or a request. We ask of the Lord. See, giving thanks to and asking of are connected. Because the only reason I have any confidence at all when I come to the Lord and ask something of Him is because I can look back and see what He's done. And I can best look back and see what He's done if I've made a habit of giving thanks to. That's why these events are so important to remind ourselves of. It is precisely because of what Jesus did that I have confidence in what he does and I have expectation of what he will do. It is because, without a word, he made it clear, I am the Messiah, come to the people of Israel. I am the Savior, come to all humanity. He did that. He didn't just say it. His works define what he did. So I have confidence Lord, I come to you in a day in, in our world, and I be the more of. I mean, I'm like everybody else. I got to really watch how much news I watch, limit how much reading. I mean, limit, but, but still, you can't get away from the fact we live in terrifying days. Things that I don't think any of us ever thought we'd see. How many of us thought that the events we read of in the Holocaust could even possibly? have been repeated. How many of us thought, yeah, well, humanity will do the same thing again. Not me. And yet I read things and I say, my God, what does humanity come to? That is terrifying. Of course, if I look at my own heart, it becomes unbelievable. But it is terrifying. But I am mindful of the God whom I serve, what he has done for me, and what I can ask of him. God speaks to us in his words. The thing he says are powerful, instructive, and healing. But he also speaks to us by his deeds. This is a really good week. The week of Thanksgiving, last week before Advent, to, to take time and to focus on what he has done. Because we've all had disappointments too, right? We all can look back and go, oh, that didn't work out the way I wanted. Some of us are a lot more serious than that. Some of us have had real hurt, real pain, real damage. And it's easy to ask, well, why didn't he do something different? That's easy to ask. But it's important to say, look at what he has done. Because even in the things that have hurt, even in the things that have hurt, he was still there. And he still showed himself faithful. And I think if we're careful to be thankful, we can all recognize that. So this, this week, rather, take time to remember those great events, those things God has done, and take time to tell somebody about it. Find somebody that you can say, this is what the Lord has done for me. Be surprised the effect it has. Father, I want to thank you for your word, Lord. As we read these events, things we've seen so many times, Father, we've seen it so often, uh, it can become kind of, you know, just routine to us. And yet, Lord, if we look at it with any, any, any thought, any meditation, we, we see in it, Father, a demonstration of your Son's power. And, Father, if we pause to think about our lives and all the demonstrations of his goodness that we have seen, Lord, we find that in that, Father, a strength 
to face the challenges we face today and in the days to come. Help us, Father, to be people mindful of what the Lord has done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.